We're looking at Genesis 13. Uh, last week, if you weren't here, we, we looked at Genesis 12, and to give you, it's really important to know what happened in Genesis, the latter half of Genesis 12, to understand what the story we're going to look at tonight. Abraham's this guy who's called by God. Uh, Genesis 12 is the passage where God starts his plan for fixing things. He calls one individual and he says, I'm starting with you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. And this is God beginning. This is the first chapter. These are the first moments of his plan of salvation. And what happens immediately after that is Abraham, he, he picks up, he follows God, follows him into this land, and then there's a famine, and he's got to deal with that. And so he goes down into Egypt, because that's what people did, because that's where food was. And when he went down into Egypt... He made some serious moral compromises for his own safety. He stopped trusting God. God had said, I'm going to turn you into this great nation. But when he was going to Egypt, what had happened was um, his wife was a very beautiful woman. And he was afraid the Egyptians were going to kill him in order to get to his wife. So he um, he told his wife, Sarah, hey, just tell him that you're my sister. And, and everything will go well with us. What ends up happening is his wife ends up being married into the Pharaoh's harem. Um, and just kind of all kinds of bad things break loose in the world, and, uh, and God delivers Abram in spite of kind of this massive moral failure, in spite of the fact that he literally sells his wife to Pharaoh for his own well-being. And so we got last week we kind of grappled with like, all right, here's the guy God starts salvation with, and he does this horrible thing, and then God delivers him from that situation, and this is what happens... And Genesis 13, and so we're going to look at Genesis 13 kind of in juxtaposition to what happened last week. So this is what happened. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot, his nephew, with him into the Negev. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they couldn't dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between me and you, between your herdsmen and mine. We're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. And if you take the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered, everything like the garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt, and the direction of Zor. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look up to the place where you are, north and south and east and west. For all the land you see I will give to you and to your offspring. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will be counted. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, and I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Marm, which are at Hebron, and he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God has stood and continues to and will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this text and as we see an odd story unfold, dear Lord, um, 
you've thought it's beneficial for us to know it. And I pray that as we consider it, we would find it beneficial, we would find it challenging. We would find that you speak to us about what it means to live faithfully, dear Lord. Holy Spirit, be with us, teach us, um, work in our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, I was reading an article another day, uh, the other day about this phenomenon that takes place all around the country. You might be familiar with it, you might not. Uh, I, I enjoy kind of the financial side uh, and the production side of Hollywood, of TV and movies. And so I was reading about how movies get their ideas and kind of this off-the-wall thing they do. There are these production, uh, these companies that get production assistants from all the major studios and ship them around the country in these huge caravans and they'll go sit in the the Sheraton Hotel conference room. They'll divide the conference room up into dozens of little cubicles where they have two chairs and a table. And anybody can go in there and you can pay $50 and this is what you get for $50. You get seven minutes to tell a Hollywood production assistant your life story. And people just line up around the corner and pay $50 for seven minutes of telling their story and pitching it to someone who has some influence in Hollywood somewhere, hoping that they can get their story told, hoping they can put it on screen one day. And I bring that up, and I I just thought it was interesting because it just reveals something that's maybe so simple that we don't even think about it, namely that what all of us are doing with our individual lives is telling a story. Um... You have, an, you, you, have a, you have a past, you know how your story has unfolded thus far, uh, and you have a future. You have a conclusion that you're aiming for. You have this picture of how you intend life to go for you. And every day you're, you're making decisions, angling towards that story that you're aiming for. And, th- and there are things that get in the way, and you have to change your story, and all of a sudden you're not reaching the conclusion you thought you were, and you adjust, and you're, re- you're, you're constantly tweaking your story. But you're telling a story, and you hope it gets to the place where you want it to go. And what, I, and what I want us to deal with tonight is this aspect of how we live our lives and how we tell our story and how we make our big decisions and even our small decisions. And it's this. What you're aiming for and how you get there is actually guided by your convictions and your values and your beliefs. How you get to wherever you're going will be guided by your convictions, your values, and your beliefs. Your beliefs about what fulfillment is, about what it looks like for you to flourish as a person, whatever you've decided flourishing for you is. Contentment. The manner in which you make about the decisions, the big ones and the small ones, um, is always guided by your beliefs and your convictions and your values. And this is what I mean by that. You came to Stanford because you believed that to get to the place I want to be in life, Stanford gives me the best shot. Maybe it's professionally, maybe it's academically, maybe you even came for social reasons, right? So you had this belief, right? I believe Stanford's going to get me to the place I want to go. It was belief that brought you here. It was conviction. You don't know what was going to happen if you came to Stanford, but you made a reasoned assumption, no guarantee, no knowledge, no sure knowledge, because you don't know what's really going to happen once you get to Stanford, but you looked at some things about Stanford, and you looked at some things about other schools, and you made a reasoned assumption that, you know, if I go to Stanford, I believe things will head in the right direction. You believe certain things. You actually made your choice about majors based on belief. I believe that if I pursue this major, I'll accomplish the career and the academic goals I want, Right? You've made, we actually make this decision about our friends. A lot of times we're not thinking in these terms um, intentionally, but 
the reason you gravitate towards certain people at the end of RUF, right, tomorrow for lunch, whatever it is, the social settings you are, is because you actually have fundamental beliefs. You actually, we all look at people, listen to them, and without even thinking about it very quickly, have all these beliefs that guide us into certain relationships, beliefs that guide us to speak certain words, right? I believe if I move toward this person, if I talk this way, if I introduce these jokes, like I believe my LSU joke was funny, but it obviously wasn't, right? <laughs> but literally, you're entering in all these beliefs you have, and by beliefs I mean reasoned assumptions that you can't be sure of, but you believe them because they're reasonable, beliefs are always reasonable, leads you to speak certain things in social contexts, leads you to choose certain roommates, leads you to pursue homework in whatever fashion you choose to pursue it, putting it off the end, getting it done beforehand, not doing it at all. That's all belief-based action. You believe that by not doing homework, I can still get by, right? That might or might not be true, but you've got some ideas, you've got some reasons why you think your belief is sound, right? I mean... What I want you to see is belief is fundamental to every action in life and every decision in life. Uh, and, and not everybody believes what you believe, and not everybody believes what I believe. Take it from kind of big things down to small things. There's a certain person, right? We're always dealing with somebody. Whoever the person that's offended you most recently, that you found cause to complain about, right? Maybe you found that you believe the way in which to handle it is to be passive-aggressive. Right? Not everybody believes that you sh how you should handle conflict. But maybe you believe that the way to handle it is to be passive-aggressive because passive-aggressive avoids the messiness of getting in people's face and actually talking about it. And you believe that getting in people's face and talking about it um, is a path to pain that you don't want to go down and that you'll be happier by avoiding it. So those are all beliefs. And beliefs have led you down that path of action. Some people believe that no shouting about it, going face-to-face, -face, getting, getting aggressive about it, that's the way to handle conflict, right? That's a belief. And not everybody has that belief, right? Some people, sometimes we believe that, well, you know, gossip and slander, that the way I'm going to deal with this is I'll kind of enjoy the high I get from bringing down their reputation among others, you know? That's, the reason you do that is because you believe that that's the best way to execute justice and you can feel better about the situation. Not everybody believes that. Not everybody shares our beliefs. And what I just want us to see tonight as we look at the story of Abram, I want to bring it back there, is this. Our actions always reveal our beliefs. We don't want that to be true, but it actually is. Um, this, is what's, this is what Elizabeth and I were talking about this afternoon. When we were talking about this idea. When, if you spend all day, especially all week, in our house, the reality is, here's my belief that governs our house. I believe that's what's most important and central in my house is my happiness and my comfort and my leisure. And I know this because when my children interrupt it, I get angry. And I go from being pleasant and fun dad, because playing with my kids is part of my comfort and leisure, so I want some of that. But when they interrupt the part that I don't want them to interrupt, I don't parent well. Because my fundamental belief is this house is about me. And not everybody believes that. It's a good thing my wife and my children don't believe that, right? <laughs> Jesus has actually put them into my life in order to confront that belief, right? But I have this story that I have for each day that I'm trying to tell because it's, I want my story to go in a certain direction because what I want each day is I want to eat a lot of bacon in the morning. <laughs> I want our children to be able to brush their hair when they oh. wake up. I want them to, us to have a short, pleasant time in the morning, them to go to school. 
I want a chance to work out. I want a chance to come uh, to come to campus and to hang out with y'all. I want to go back home and I want to watch television. And I want to talk to Elizabeth about my day, but not for very long, just like 15 minutes. <laughs> and then I want to watch the Colbert Report and I want to go to sleep. That's what I want. That's my story. And if I could tell that story every single day, I'd be happy. Or at least I think I would. I believe that I would be happy. Right? We believe all these things, and belief is really the right word. And um, you believe every action you've done, you've done it because you believed it was the best in terms of telling your story. And um, I'll address this real quick before we get into the text. Um, If you're skeptical about the idea of faith and belief, and you hear that, you're like, oh, that's religious language. Um, and, and I'm skeptical of this notion of, and, and I'm kind of using faith and belief together of those terms. Um, I just want to throw this out there for you to think about. Isaiah 7 9 says this it says, Unless you believe, you will not understand. And Augustine, this theologian, thousands of years ago, said this If you have not understood, then what you need to do first is to believe. Understanding is the reward of believing. So don't seek to understand in order to believe, but believe in order that you understand. Now I'm making this point, and this is a point that Isaiah and Augustine make, and actually most philosophers of science agree with today, the people who are writing philosophy about science. Knowledge comes after faith. And that's really my point for the first five minutes. Knowledge comes after belief. That first you actually have to believe something before you can come to any sound knowledge. This is what Thomas Kuhn, kind of the guy who wrote the most important text on philosophy of science, says this. A scientific community can't practice its trade without some set of received beliefs beforehand. Let me demonstrate it for you really simply. How do you know Christopher Columbus at sail in 1492? Somebody told you. And the reason you've chosen to believe them is you made a reasoned assumption you looked at their credentials, you looked at the position that they have, and you said, I believe that. Your knowledge of history is all belief-based. Our knowledge of math and science is increasingly, everybody's admitting, is belief-based. The way we come to almost all the knowledge we have in this world is because we trust people. When you read a textbook and you agree with the facts in that textbook, you're trusting a person. Your act of knowing is an act of trusting a person. Faith precedes, guides, sits at the foundation of everything we do as humans. That's my first point. And our actions always reveal what we believe. It reveals what our faith is in. And here's our question for tonight. How does Abram go from the guy that acts that way in Genesis 12 to the guy that acts this way in Genesis 13? That's our question. How how do his actions change so dramatically? He goes from a guy who's scared out of his mind sends his wife to sleep with a king so that he won't die. To in Genesis 13, a guy who God, he's stepped into the promised land, back into it in Genesis 13, the promised land that God has already said, this is yours. And when there's, when there's strife, he says to his nephew, you know what, take whatever you want and I'll just deal with the rest. How do you go somebody that's pimping out his wife to somebody who's giving up the promises of God to his nephew? That's the question. How could his beliefs change so drastically that his actions would have changed so drastically? And this is the point in the text. How does he do it? He doesn't do anything. 
he doesn't do anything. God does. Last week, we encountered Abram the pragmatist, right? Confronted with a difficult situation, makes an ugly moral compromise in order to get what he wanted in life. He found that following God was too costly, and it seemed unreasonable, so he went down his own path of pragmatic self-preservation, hurt himself, hurt people around him. And what happened? God was faithful. God said, this is how I'm executing, I'm, I'm using you to save the world. And in spite of what you've done here, I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to sustain you. And he even blesses him. He even gives him lots of stuff. What happens in Genesis 13 is this. Abraham begins to demonstrate a new kind of conviction, right? He worships God, he comes back to the altar of God, and then he begins to exhibit a very counterintuitive kind of selflessness. And this is the reason why. This is why he goes from a man that's a coward to a man that has crazy, unbelievable conviction. It's because of this. If you sold your wife into slavery and God, in spite of your massive immorality and stupidity, delivered you and then blessed you and gave you more stuff, you know what you would do? You'd follow that God anyway. Abram doesn't change. He's simply responding to who God is. Nothing about Abram has changed from Genesis 12 to Genesis 13. The only thing that's happened in the text is God delivered him. This is the point. It's not how hard you believe or how good you are at holding your convictions. It's what you believe in. It's not how hard you believe. It's not how good you are at holding tight to those beliefs. It's simply the strength of the object you believe in. Belief is strong because of the object trusted in, not because of the vigor with which you rest in it. It's not how much faith you can muster up. It's actually what your faith is in that makes your faith strong. And all of life testifies this reality. And the easiest example, Ethan's a climber. What is a climbing rope? Average, I don't know, dynamic or static climbing rope. How much weight can it hold? Yeah, several hundred pounds. Um, if you've been climbing before, the first time you lock into that rope, it can be terrifying. Um, but that rope can hold up you and several other individuals. And so no matter how terrified you are, no matter how little faith you have, if you step out on that rope, guess what? It holds you up just as much as the person who's utterly and completely confident that the rope will hold him up. You see, the strength of your faith has nothing to do with your vigor. It has to do with the object you trust in. Another illustration, you have a pond frozen over. It's frozen a centimeter thick. No matter how convinced and confident you are that that ice will hold you up if you step out on it, no matter how much strength you have and how much vigor in your faith and conviction you have, it won't hold you up. If the ice is four feet thick, four feet thick, and you're terrified, utterly terrified and timid, and you inch out onto that ice, guess what? It holds you up. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong the object is in which you trust. And that's good news. So faith is weak and struggling all the time. And that's why Jesus says, all I need is a mustard seed. Isn't that good news? It just takes a mustard seed of faith. And so... In line of that, kind of maybe an application point to walk away with is consider your actions, honestly. Consider your actions, the small ones and the big ones. 
consider the story that you're trying to tell and what your actions really reveal about your beliefs about the world, right? And about you. And ask the question, am I telling an empty story? Am I telling a foolish hope? Does my story have significance? And in a sense, here's another application point. We've got to stop being impressed by confident people. I don't even mean that. We've got to stop being impressed by confident people. Because who cares if your confidence is in something foolish? No matter how confident you are. The timid and the bold are no less strong. And, they're, and the timid and the bold, neither one of them is more or less secure. It's not the vigor with which you believe, it's the object that you believe in. And that's why the Bible is so full of comfort for the broken and the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. It's not the strength or the vigor with which you rest in Jesus. It's simply the work of Jesus that is your strength. That's why... One of the best songs we sing in here is um, Christ the Solid Rock. On Christ the Solid Rock I stand. And the first verse says this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. I dare not trust in sweetest frame. What he's talking about there is, I dare not trust my own sense of my own strength of faith. When he says frame, he just means my frame of spirit. Because it's good at times and bad at others. Don't trust in the sweetest frame. Don't only trust when you happen to be excited on a certain day. Trust in Jesus and His blood and righteousness. That's how Abram becomes a man of conviction. He doesn't change. He just sees that God's faithful. Now what does it do to him? What your faith is in, what you believe about the world, shapes your behavior and it changes the way you act and it shapes how you walk into the decisions of life, right? So look at Abram. He's, now, he's not strengthened by his own sense of vigor, but he's strengthened because he's more sure now, right, that his God is faithful. He's experienced the faithfulness of God. He knows that the object in which he trusts is strong. And he's strengthened because God has demonstrated that God continues to remain faithful. That in our weakness... I mean, this is why Abram's strong, is precisely because in his weakness he saw that God was strong. That's the source of Abram's strength. And what happens to him? He does counterintuitive things. He's become this huge caravan at this point, right? Huge family, all kinds of goods and all that kind of stuff. They left Egypt. They settle in this new land. They're Perizzites. They're Canaanites. Their whole nephews, whole clan is there. And, and remember who Abram is. He's the guy who beforehand, when it came to being pragmatic, he was willing to sell his wife, right? He's also the man who, he, at this point in the story, they're actually standing on the land that God spoke to him and said, this is your land that I'm giving to you, right? And what does he do? He says, Lot, you can take whatever land you want. That's really fine. You do what you need to do. I hope that you get taken care of, and I'll figure out something for my family. I mean, we should almost be uncomfortable with the Abram of, 12, of chapter 12 and the Abram of chapter 13. The change is so dramatic. The object of his faith because of the promises of God, because of the certainty of the promises of God, because Abram witnessed it firsthand, his object of faith gives him freedom. This is what it actually does. It actually makes him free. He's, freedom for, he's free from the need to assert all of his rights, right? 
over against other people all the time. Freedom from the belief that things are going to make him happy. Freedom from the pursuit of his own interest above anyone else. Freedom from narcissism and self-concern. Knowing, having a sure knowledge that God, in which he's growing to trust him more and more, that God's always faithful to his promises. Abram's free from the need to scrap and to fight and to conjure some form of security because he knows that his God is good. And it makes Abram free to be generous, right? Free to be kind, free to give others the best, free to hold other people's concerns above his. And the reason why is because of the object of his faith. And this is what it looks like. If you're in Jesus, if you if if by just a little faith you're in Jesus, the weak faith and the struggling faith, you're clinging to Jesus, then you have all the promises of God in him. Not kinda or a little bit because you just kinda have faith or just a little bit. Now that's the point of with the faith of a mustard seed you can move mountains. God's saying, No, no. It's me who's strong, not your faith. It's me who makes your faith strong, not the sense of vigor that you have about it. Right? This is what it means for us. Individually. Again, relationships is the place where we're kind of always revealed. The person that's irritating you. Right? They've said something. They've behaved in a way. They've taken something that offends you. You've been slighted. It's a roommate. It's a parent. Whoever it is. Wherever the place that you have conflict. And the reason it's so infuriating, infuriating in that place, right, is because you know you have this list of reasons why they shouldn't have behaved or spoken the way they had, right? You have this list. And, and you're right, because what they did is wrong. And they need to know that what they did is wrong. And they need to be shamed. They need to feel the reason, and they also need to feel the wrath of your frustration. And, and other people need to know about it as well, Right? And you really have a right to harbor resentment and defeat on it. And the reality is, if the Lord is not setting the world to rights, that's exactly what you should do. Right? If there is no forgiveness, if there's no resurrection, then that's exactly the course you should pursue. Is execute justice the best way you can within your individual friendships. Have the fight, make them pay, whatever it looks like, however you deal with conflict. But if on the other hand... If you're in Jesus, right? If it's true. And if the riches of the resurrection are yours, if, if the riches of the resurrection are yours, who cares? Really, who cares? You get to walk into these frustrating situations and Jesus' resurrection, the reality of it, and that it is yours, even with your tiny mustard seed of faith, because it is yours, man, bring the perspective of the fact that the resurrection is yours, that you're adopted son and daughter of the king, that you're redeemed and you're restored, forgiven. Man, bring that into the tiny little menial part of life, and all of a sudden, it doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Who cares? Who really cares? God's preparing a feast for you to join with your family. You are a son or daughter of the king. The resurrection is yours. Your sin has been taken care of. Like, all these promises of yours are yours. No matter, just with your mustard seed of faith. So who cares about the little bit of social insecurity? Right? Instead of being terrified and angry all the time and spiraling into these places of insecurity and anxiety when you're mocked or you're despised or you're forgotten or you're dismissed or unappreciated or misunderstood, you have the favor of the king. Who cares? Really? Who cares? 
Who cares about those other things? Instead of spiraling into those places, that's why Jesus says, you know what? You have so much in me. You know what you should do? You should take them out and pay for a nice dinner for them. You have so much in me that with the little bit of worldly things, a little bit of money and the resources you've accumulated, man, go and love on your enemies with them. Because you have so much. You have so much. Who cares about these things? Do you see how it frees us to let go of the narcissism and the self-concern that drives us all the time, makes us terribly insecure, makes us feel like our story's not going to happen for us? And instead, we actually become these really, really interesting-looking people, right, when you trust in Jesus, because all of a sudden, you become a self-giver. And you're giving yourself away into other situations, and even giving yourself away to enemies. Because so much has been given to you, and you're no longer threatened by not getting your story told the way you wish it had gone. And that's what we're all threatened by. That our story's not going to get to a place where we want to be. So, brief points of application to close. First thing is this. If you're in Jesus, if, if you've got that mustard seed, then what we need is what, we, is what Abram needs. Is we need to go back to Scripture early and often. Tonight, I would say the application is this. What God's given us is a couple of thousand pages of history. This is history. This is what this primarily is. And he said, listen, I've got thousands of stories that I've, that I've shared that I've, that are about my history and the way I've dealt with people, and I want you to know all the different ways that I've been faithful and all the different ways that my love for my people has been unstoppable. Because that's what we need to know, and that's what makes our faith strong. Not our sense of vigor, but the fact that God's saying, listen, one of my kings, one of my most favored servants, seduced his uh, neighbor's wife. There's forgiveness for him, and you need to know that. We need to know that. You know, if other people have done terrible things to you early in life now and, and you're broken and you don't feel like he can be fixed and you're wondering, can he heal me? He's got thousands of cases of how he's healed people. He can heal you. We need to rehearse these stories to ourselves over and over again. If, if I don't get married, can he still take care of me? Go here. He's got thousands of pages about how he's cared for people in all kinds of difficult situations. Right? If I'm regarded in a fool as a fool in this world, can I still survive the consequences? If I obey some of the ridiculous things he calls me to, can I really can I make it in this world? Will I be alright? What he's given us is thousands of pages of testimony of saying, like, listen, I need you to see all the different ways I'm continually faithful. You just can't come up with a situation that I can't that this is God. You can't come in a situation that he can't bring to you in Scripture and say, no, 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 I'm faithful in that situation as well. So the application for tonight is come and see the faithfulness of God. We need to see it early and often and over and over again because we're forgetful, right? If you're a skeptic, if you're coming here in RUF and you're wondering about these things and we want this to be a place where anybody can come and think about this, and, and I'll throw this out, and, and it's a bit simplistic. We're all telling a story with our life. And what I want to posit is there's two fundamental stories. There's one story that says there's no narrative. Creation doesn't have a direction. This world uh, is just kind of heading without a leader, without a story, without a meta-narrative to it. We're just kind of scrapping by to get our own for the period of time that we're alive. And so basically while you're alive, try to have as much sex as you can and try to get as many apple products as you can, right? Because that's the path to happiness, right? And then when it's over, your life has no real significance. 
Um, you're just atoms that were particularly lined up in a fancy way for a period of time. Right? And of course what that means is evil's not wrong. Justice and goodness isn't real. Abuse is not bad. Beauty's not real. And the good parts of life, things like friendship and good food and ski weekends with real snow, they have no intrinsic goodness to them. Right? It means that your anger at people is illegitimate. It means that your sorrow is also illegitimate because it's all a wash. Because life's just a coincidence. So get as much as you can and blame everybody else, right? So that's one story. This is the story that Scripture posits to you. And my question is, this is the real question, which story do you find to be more believable? The story that Scripture throws out is this. Justice really exists. Death is really evil. And we should be sad about it. Sickness is really sad. Breakups are really sorrowful. Beauty is real. Friendships are great. Addiction is really sad. Abuse is evil. And truth is really, really good. The world was made by a good God. And it was intended to be good. And all the alienation and the sorrow and the anger and the addiction and the insecurity. All of that in us is our souls screaming that it wasn't supposed to be like this. In the brief glimpses of beauty and the sweet short moments of good friendship, the fun times, that sense of happiness and peace that we have, that's our soul screaming. It was supposed to be like that. But those moments never stay. And in this story, the world's broken, and we're responsible for it. It's not everybody else's fault. It's my fault, and it's your fault. And it's my fault. And it's also your fault. And in this story, we can't fix it because we've tried over and over again. We've tried different ways. We've tried with philosophies and worldviews, with policies, with personal practices, with exercise routines, with diets, and with therapies, and with education, and it hasn't fixed it yet. We haven't covered over our shame. We all know it. Right? So the end of this story is this. God's in the business of fixing it. That redemption is his plan for restoring creation, restoring relationships, restoring his people. And the way in which he does it is he sends his son to come and absorb the evil that we've been responsible for in his death. And so he bears the responsibility himself for what we've done. And so we're made clean. And now we're still broken. And we're awaiting the resurrection. But now having been redeemed, having been purchased, we now become agents of change, right? Full of humility, hopefully, right? growing in humility because we're redeemed not by our own good works but by the blood of Jesus and full of ambition to live with character and make him known and all the while trying to figure that out coming back to him with all the inevitable failures that come back in our life and hearing again and again and again from him this verdict my grace is sufficient for you my grace is sufficient for you my grace is sufficient for you so this is really the question of those two stories which one is more believable? And if belief is something that's scary for you, and it's hard for you, Mark 9.24 is the sweetest prayer in all of Scripture, and I urge you to pray it often. And it's this, I believe, help my unbelief. God wrote that prayer and handed it to you. I believe, help my unbelief. And what that means when you pray that prayer is you're thinking, ah, all I got is like a mustard seed, and that's enough. Let's pray.